Good morning. Authority. All right. Uh, Let's begin with prayer. Lord, cleanse the inspiration of our hearts, thoughts of our minds, that we may indeed worthily love you. Amen. So in 2006, a film starring Will Ferrell came out. And no, I'm not referring to Talladega Nights, though that is certainly a cinematic masterpiece. I have some really lovely Christology in there. (laughs) I'm thinking of the movie Stranger Than Fiction. Have you seen it? Stranger Than Fiction, yeah? So it's a somewhat more serious film by Will Ferrell's standards in which Will Ferrell plays Harold Crick, who's an IRS agent who lives an unremarkable and unsatisfying life. He begins to hear a voice in his head, the voice of Dame Emma Thompson, right? Which if you're going to hear a voice in your head, right? And she's narrating everything he does. Thompson plays Karen Eiffel, who is a novelist known for killing off the main character of her novels. And you see where this is going, right? As it turns out, Eiffel is writing the story of Crick's life. And what she writes happens to Crick. And he begins to feel quite worried about the prospects of how things will end for him. Now, I won't spoil the movie if you haven't seen it, but it's a really brilliant depiction of the way Harold Crick lives a storied life. And in much the same way, we live storied lives too. If you want to get to know somebody, would you rather hear a list of their attributes or would you rather hear a compelling account of the most significant moments of their lives? Yeah, okay. My students know that I don't ask rhetorical questions. Um, Yeah, probably the second, right? Stories. Stories matter because they provide the coherence of our lives, right? They tell us where we've come from, where we are, and where we're going. We all live storied lives, and like Crick, there is a storyteller to our lives, not Emma Thompson. So return to Stranger Than Fiction for a moment. Harold Crick eventually discovers that Eiffel is writing the story of his life. And that's important because the kind of storyteller that she is impacts Crick's life directly, right? She kills off her protagonists, after all. But then imagine with me, all of a sudden, that the storyteller shifts, Suppose that halfway through, Eiffel is no longer the storyteller, but she is swapped with Stephen King, who I've been reading a lot of recently. Crick then needs not only to be worried about being killed off, but now about killer killer clowns, ravenous dogs, and murderous prom queens, right? Which is bad news for Crick. So I begin with this illustration for two reasons. First, to show that we all live storied lives whose authorship does not belong to us, like Crick. And second, to show that the author of our stories matters and that we need them to be consistent. And that's what I want to highlight from our passages today. I have two parts that I want to share with you. Part one is this. The same God who creates is the God who redeems. The same God who creates is the God who redeems. God is the author of our story, and God is a consistent storyteller, such that God's act of creation is joined up with God's act of redemption. God's drama is not disjointed or contradictory, but God's commitment to that which he has created is demonstrated in his redemption of those very creatures. 
God sticks it out with us, in other words. That's the first point. The second part is this. God has recreated us to live lives of love where conceptions of worth and power are reconfigured. We are saved into a kind of life where what established our salvation, past tense, namely that we've been saved without regard to our worth, shapes how we live our lives today as the church, that we no longer recognize worldly standards of worth. So part one, the same God who creates is the God who redeems. Part two, God has redeemed us into a life of love and disregard for worldly standards of worth. So let's begin part one with our psalm, a psalm that you're probably familiar with. It's a lovely account of God's intimate knowledge of who we are and the basis for that knowledge. Of course, God knows all things because God is omniscient. He knows all things. But here further reason is given. God knows all things, all of us, because God is the one who made us. He knows us because he made us. For that reason, God is the one who is able to give a definitive and final statement about what is most fundamentally true about us. We might hear echoes of another psalm here, Psalm 24, which begins by asserting that the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and all who live in it, that's all of us. And why does the earth and all who live in it belong to the Lord? The psalm continues, he has founded it on the seas and established it on the rivers. Because God has made all things, God therefore owns all things and knows all things with a pure and intimate knowledge. Most of my sermon illustrations and illustrations in class come from my kid these days, who you probably just saw over there. Because I am my three-year-old's parent, I know her in ways better than she knows herself, despite her desperate pleas to the contrary. She thinks that she can climb up on the kitchen counter or not brush her teeth, but because my wife and I brought her into this world, we just know her better. We can take her out of it. No, I'm just kidding. No, I don't say that. I'm a good dad. Just kidding. <laughs> Stick to the script. All right. So it is with God. He made us, and so he loves us. He knows us better than we do. Notice how our psalm uses tons of words to describe this intimate knowledge. God searched us out and knows us. He knows our sitting down and our rising. He traces or searches out our paths. God is acquainted with all of our ways, knowing all of the words before they are uttered, hemming us in. This leads the psalmist to confess the uniqueness of God's knowledge. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. That is because God alone is creator. God alone created our innermost parts, knitting us together from the moment we are brought into existence. And notice the detail of verses 14 and 15. The psalmist takes pain to point out that it is our bodies, those very bodies sitting in your chairs with their perfections and imperfections, with what we accept about them and what we have a hard time accepting about them that God has made. These bodies are not hidden from God, even as we try on a daily basis to hide aspects of our bodies which we are ashamed of from others. I don't need to tell you that the body is a source of deep insecurity women and for men, for the young, for the old, and for in our world is filled with ways of categorizing bodies so as to rank them on the basis of their worth, whether because of 
Some have this kind of skin and others don't, or this kind of hair or this kind of clothing or whatever. But the way that God beholds our bodies is not like this. The fact that our bodies are not hidden from God is not a reason for shame. For at the same time that God knows our bodies, he also loves them. And that's because he made them. Right? God made our bodies and loves our creatureliness and our materiality far better than we can. Praise God. That means that you are not an accident. God has put an immense amount of detail and love into you. God is not the kind of God that makes us change ourselves, whether our bodies or moral abilities or anything else, before God loves us. It's the other way around. God has an intimate, complete, and loving knowledge of everything that we are, warts and all. So our psalm teaches us that God is our creator who knows us and loves us better than we could love ourselves. This knowledge is inseparable from God's love, but it also has something to say about our sin. If God knows all things, God also knows our sin to the extent that we cannot hide them from God, nor should we try to. This is not included in our reading from today, but later in the psalm, the psalmist inquires, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? The answer is, of course, nowhere. And we get a vivid image of what reality is like, this reality of repentance and sin and forgiveness in the Jeremiah reading. The Jeremiah reading depicts depicts God as a potter taking a bit of clay to work on his wheel. And as he made the pot, he notices that it is made of spoiled clay, leading him to rework it as it seemed good to him, says verse 4. Now, I've never done any pottery. Maybe some of you have. So this illustration is a little bit beyond my reach. But you know what I do have? You guessed it, a (laughs) three-year-old. And let me tell you that there is a difference between good Play-Doh and spoiled Play-Doh. Yeah? All the parents of toddlers said amen. Good Play-Doh has a nice color, smooth. It can even look like everyday objects like spaghetti. Bad (laughs) Play-Doh is crunchy. (laughs) There's bits in it of whatever, and it's virtually useless as you are trying to pick it out of the nooks and crannies of a kid's toy where it was crammed, right? Good Play-Doh, bad Play-Doh. The Jeremiah reading is crucial because it makes a very important point that connects our creation and our redemption. On one level, this passage says something about God. God as our creator is free to declare, says verse 7, that sin has marred us beyond the recognition of our created intent. And while it is deeply uncomfortable to think about, when we do evil in God's sight, says verse 10, which remember extends to our entire lives, God is entirely within his rights to judge us. Without qualification, God is against evil. God created this world to be free of evil. So when evil deeds are performed, even by Christians, we can be sure that God is against such things. Psalm 146, verses 5 through 7, joins up God's role as creator and his concern for justice in a world of evil in the following way. Here's what it says. Happy are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God, who made creator heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. So there's creator who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. And there's the concern for the evil that is done in the world. That is the way our creator relates to creation. So when we enact evil, we are called to repent. 
Thus, chapter 18, verse 11 of Jeremiah. Look, I am a potter shaping evil against you and devising a plan against you. Turn now, repent, all of you from your evil way and amend your ways and your doings. Now, there's a long tradition of reading Psalm 139 Christologically. And this interpretation captures well the dynamic of repentance in Jeremiah. When the psalmist says, you know my sitting down and my rising up, this can be a reference to our confession of sin and repentance. We sit down, and that signifies our recognition of loneliness due to sin, loneliness. And that necessarily precedes our rising. We can't rise until we've sat, right? We have, been, we have to be brought down before we are able to rise up. And Christ does raise us up. To go down and to be brought up, to be clay that is reworked, both of these are images of how our Creator is committed to our redemption. <coughs> Excuse me. To be crafted by the hands of God calls back imagery of God having fashioned us out of the dust, and now we see ourselves being recrafted after sin. Because God is the one who created all things, he remains committed to all things. And such a commitment is demonstrated in his mercy shown to those who repent. This reveals to us that God creating all things was no hands-off procedure. St. Irenaeus, one of the very first Christian theologians, one of my favorites, I have his picture in my office, loved to use the image of two hands to describe the way that God the Trinity reaches down to us in time and space. These two hands are, of course, the Son and the Spirit sent by the Father. So Irenaeus uses this beautiful image of God using his hands to make all things, like a gardener. But he's also equally careful to ensure us, to ensure to us that God did not take his hands off the wheel after creation. So he enlarges the image. God is not only uses his two hands to make all things, but he's like an architect who uses his hands to craft and design not just the beginning of history, but all of history. So this is Irenaeus. I'm going to read you a quote from Irenaeus. It's not Augustine this time. <laughs> I had to take the Augustine quote out. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Here's Irenaeus. He says, He himself, indeed having need of nothing, but granting communion with himself, think of the table, to those who stood in need of it, sketched out like an architect the plan of salvation to those who pleased him, to those that please him. For Irenaeus, God is the architect using his two hands to create and to redeem, unifying a story in which God is supreme over all in Jesus Christ. He looks at his creation, broken in sin as it is, and does not remove his hands. By the Son and the Spirit, the Father lovingly embraces us in sin, delicately reshaping the messy clay that we have become. And into what is God reshaping us? This is part two. That was all part one. This is part two now. We are spoiled clay, but we are becoming new vessels. What are the basic features and characteristics of this new vessel? For an answer to that, we turn to Philemon. The answer is this. God is reshaping us into vessels of love, made by love to love. We are being redeemed into a life of love. 
The only thing that counts, says St. Paul in Galatians 5.6, is faith working through love. For Paul, love is a powerful force that reshapes the social expectations of a community, nullifying grabs for power and stratifications of worth so that the lives of those who form the body of Christ are radically realigned. So realigned, in fact, that slaves are set free or manumitted. Paul begins with love. He writes to Philemon, recognizing in him the love that characterizes those inhabited by the Holy Spirit. Here's what he says. Philemon is a dear friend and co-worker, one for whom Paul prays and thanks God because he hears of your love for all the saints and your faith toward the Lord Jesus. Philemon's love, in fact, bring, brings Paul much joy and encouragement. Philemon was a dear Christian loving the body of Christ. He was also most likely a slave owner. Paul recognizes the love of Philemon and wishes for it to be shown concretely in a particular way, the release of Onesimus, his slave. That reveals something crucial to us. Paul thinks that the ideal source of moral action is love. In other words, Christians are called to do good and that good comes from the love of God poured forth into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, as Romans 5.5 says. Paul could command Philemon to do so on the basis of apostolic authority. Right? He owes him his whole life. But he doesn't want to. He wants to recognize that love that Philemon already possesses and have it expressed in a particular direction toward Onesimus. He says, for this reason... Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty, yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. It's verses 8 and 9. So that Philemon's obedience might be voluntary and not something forced. Verse 14. This confirms a central insight that has been long recognized in the Christian tradition, namely that it's all about love. It's the one thing that we see that God is. When it comes to our obedience, our sanctification, our goodness, our holiness, we need a transformation of the objects of our love, a radical reordering of our loves so that we may bear the proper fruit from a rightly calibrated heart. The Bible says a lot about our hearts, by the way. So what kind of love is Paul expecting of Philemon here? Paul is expecting Philemon to show a love that recognizes no other standard of worth than union with Christ. Institutions like slavery depend on rigid standards of worth according to which certain people are understood to be at the top and full of power and others are understood to lack sufficient worth, lack enough worth to be bought and sold. And in what he teaches, Paul has no room for such standards of worth. John Barclay, who's a New Testament scholar, claims that Paul understands the work of Christ to create a new value system. He says this, In that new value system, there is one thing and one thing only that is always of value in every circumstance for everyone. Whatever else may be useful or of relative value in certain contexts and for certain purposes, it cannot be placed in the same category of worth as Christ. Right? All other human standards of worth cannot be placed in the same category as the worth we have in Christ. Because Christ was given to us without regard to our worth, while we were still sinners, 
says Paul, we cannot consider one another as having any kind of worth other than that which comes from being united to Christ. And that means that Onesimus must be received by Philemon in a love that sees him, as verse 16 states really powerfully, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. Paul is effectively saying to Philemon, that love which is already yours in Christ is a love that restructures all worth, even Onesimus's. Here's how one Bible scholar summarizes it. He says this, Paul is challenging accepted societal practices related to asymmetrical relationships of power, uneven symmetric relationships of power. His approach rejects the idea that one is in a position of power over others can use that power to force dependents to do what the person in power wants them to do. Right? Paul is saying if you've got power in the church and in the community created by Christ, that power is not an excuse for you to go and lord it over others and force and coerce others to do what you want them to do. That's contrary to the gospel. His approach removes power over, the quote continues, as the criterion for establishing the rights and duties inhabited by the body of Christ, replacing it with what? With the criterion of shared love. In the Christian community, the position of power over is held by one person and one person alone. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ, who rightly uses it to impart favor and peace. And here's the kicker. This is the crucial sentence. Relationships between Christ followers are characterized not by power, but by behaving toward each other out of a motivation of love. The love shared between them as brothers and sisters, children of one father. Because So that's the quote. Because Philemon and Onesimus exist in that space created by the gospel and received in a faith that works itself out through love, systems like slavery that depend on variations of worth are undone. There is only one sisterhood and brotherhood in Christ. You are all one in Christ, says Galatians. And that is what we are called to do as well as the church. Because God is a God who hates evil and is constantly recreating us to see ourselves as aligned to the worth that is found in Christ, we must channel our love into lives that already conform to that reality already constituted by Jesus. The most fundamentally true thing about you, which God has the ultimate authority to say, is this, that you are living a story-shaped life in which God is the decisive storyteller who knows more about you than you will ever recognize in yourself, who knew more about Onesimus and Philemon than you will ever know about themselves, who has made you and remade you, created you and redeemed you with his two hands, lifting us out of those places that tell us that we have absolutely no worth and saying to the body of Christ, you are worthy in Christ. Any alternative narrative, like a narrative that endorses slavery, tells a false story, an enchanting and also often useful, economically useful fiction that works only to distract us from what Christ has done. But we are called to more. And in that true story, our faith works itself out in love toward a hope where Christ is all in all. Let's pray. Merciful God, thank you for sending your Son and your Spirit to embrace us in that story of grace 
in which we are lifted up out of our sin and destitution and brought to a place where we're recognized in you. Given the dignity to be called brothers and sisters in Christ, a name that we do not deserve, we are given through grace. Pray that our church would live that reality out faithfully. And we ask this through Christ our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit are ever worshiped and glorified. Amen.